Hello and welcome everyone to KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM. I'm Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to yet another special edition of our show, What to Be. On the show today is my recent conversation with Dr. Ginger Charles, former police sergeant and current research psychologist. And joining us for this conversation, Santa Cruz City Mayor Justin Cummings. Mayor Cummings talked to us about what changes are happening right now in our community to make this city a better place. And Dr. Charles provides invaluable feedback and insight and brings back the important question, how would you like to be policed? So with that, let's start the show. Mr. Mayor, how about you get us started? Uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background. So I've been, um, my background is in ecology, evolutionary biology. I got my PhD at UC Santa Cruz. And I'm currently working with the UC Natural Reserve System as an environmental uh, sensor monitoring technician. And I also am a drone operator. So I've been working to fly drones at the different reserves where we take um, pictures, we take spectral imagery pictures, and then we can use those images to kind of understand how ecosystems change with climate change over time. Wow. Yeah, amazing. How, how long ago did you finish your, your program? Uh, my PhD, I finished in 2013, and I went to Miami to do a postdoc for two years studying the effects of climate change on the uptake and release of carbon in the Everglades. Then I moved back to Santa Cruz, where I uh, was the founding director of the Doris Duke Conservation Scholars Program, and that program is focused on increasing diversity in the field of environmental conservation, which tends to still be predominantly white, but as we know, as our country becomes more diverse, there's a need for more diverse voices in that conversation. So we really focused on training early career college students, leadership skills, giving them research skills, and then providing them the funding so that they didn't have to worry about you know, taking the summer off and, and not being able to get that internship experience. So Wonderful. That is fantastic. When did, at what point after that, did you decide, okay, I, I want to be the mayor now? So 2018, um, well, actually back in 2017, I started working on a rent control campaign here in Santa Cruz. I'd seen a lot of my friends get pushed out. And when I moved back to Santa Cruz, it was just so expensive to live here. Um, I, I felt like we needed to do something. And so through that campaign, uh, I was one of the higher signature gatherers for that effort. And people asked about the rent for office. And I thought, I had a pretty flexible job that was you know, kind of streamlined, and I thought that uh, I might be able to make it happen. And so ran for office and got elected in 2018. And we rotate mayors here in Santa Cruz. So um, 20, because I was the highest vote getter, I was voted in by the city council to be mayor in 2020. And so and that's, that's all she wrote. And so next year I'll rotate out, but I'll be the mayor for this entire year. I think so far our community seems grateful. It's, it's, I am. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Thank you for telling us a little bit about yourself, Mr. Mayor. And thank you both very much for speaking with me today. I, I'm excited to have the two of you here and happy to introduce the two of you because Dr. Charles, you can just provide such valuable information related to the changes being called for in police reform. And I know the two of you haven't met before today. So, Dr. Charles, how about you share with us a little bit about your work and you can fill in Mayor Cummings about where your perspective is coming from in all of this. So uh, I've done a lot of research. Uh, actually, my Ph.D. is in health psychology, and uh, I've done a lot of research in the police community and police culture within the United States and the United Kingdom. I have a research partner um, over there as well. 
And right about the time I was getting ready to retire as a police officer, I had 27 years. And we started to hear some really interesting things as we were interviewing them about their health, their spiritual health. We couldn't really put our finger on it. And uh, then as I moved to Modesto, I started to, uh, to teach in the community college over there. Then we started to see all the shootings and the violence in 2014. And so I started to look at the police culture with the social psychological lens. And uh, I was very fortunate to have um, a young black man who sat down with me and uh, I interviewed him for a couple hours. I, I interviewed uh, several folks um, concerning how they felt about policing, what policing was actually doing to them. And this young black man was so wonderful and gave me this. When I said, how do you want to be policed? And he said, from a distance. And I said, I don't, I don't know if I understand that. And so he went on to explain that, you know, in a, in a black community, the police are hovering on top of everyone to the point where they don't feel like they can move in a white community that feels like it's safe, but in a black community, that's, that's kind of scary. And so we had a great conversation. And so I started to uh, incorporate the interviews as well as the research. And then I wrote a book on the police pursuit of the common good. Happy to give you a copy, sir, if you like it. And then, um, and then trying to get into police communities to talk about, you know, we have to change, we have to change the culture inside policing. There are so many things that are, are wrong that it's not only causing stress within our communities, but it's certainly causing stress and disease within our police officers. So we see a lot of anxiety and depression and um, angst and, and fear. And so we have this community inside the police organization that's now meeting a community outside. And I'm surprised there's not more violence. And so uh, that tells me, you know, you have good people that are, are meeting and are more resilient than we think. But we have this potentiality for much more violence if we don't fix this problem, this racist systemic problem within law enforcement. Mr. Mayor, um, I watched recently the the public forum that you held with with uh, Police Chief Mills, and first of all, thank you for doing that. That was incredibly informative. I, I thought there were very very good questions asked there, and and uh, the both of you were were able to at least answer some of of the issues that that were being addressed there. I'm wondering if we've had the chance to speak with our community about this very question that Dr. Charles has just proposed in terms of how would we like to be policed? How would our community? like to be policed by our police department? Yeah, so that actually, just to give an update, so after that meeting, we, for the past three weeks in a row, have met with uh, representatives from the black community here in Santa Cruz. Obviously not everyone, but we've tried to just, you know, bring black voices into the conversation and ask people, you know, what are some of the things that they're facing and what are some of their concerns? And it really varies because for some folks, for example, there are individuals who have moved from bigger cities, myself included. So I grew up in Chicago on the South side. And uh, there were people who grew up in LA and other parts of the country who really felt like when they came to San the city of Santa Cruz, they felt less threatened by the police. Whereas other people were expressing that they live in the county. And once you leave the city of Santa Cruz, you start feeling more of that pressure that you're being watched when you go into Scotts Valley, Capitola, when you go out into certain parts of the county, um, there were more issues of confrontation with the sheriff's office. 
And so we really were trying to break down, and I think we still to some extent are trying to really break down what is it that is needed within the black community here in Santa Cruz. And I just want to, you know, and that's been really the forefront of, of what I've been desiring to do because something that came up with the protests that were happening, and I ended up confronting a few of those protests outside the police station, was that, you know, starting to see who is, you know, who, who are the people who are committing vandalism, who is at the front with the bullhorn kind of leading the charge. And oftentimes I saw that there were a lot of, um, a lot of white people who were kind of in those positions. And one of the things that was important for me was really trying to see like, where are the people of color in this group? And where's, what narrative are they pushing? And so I think that for the chief and myself, it's been really important because we've received hundreds of emails where, you know, the framing of defunding the police is under, um, you know, the police are racist and there's systemic racism built into policing. But then when they say what that money will be used for, they really say, you know, affordable housing to address homelessness. And in that, you know, what will resources be used for? You never hear of anything that's going to really help black communities and how they're being policed. So I think it's really important that we are sitting down and having these conversations to understand exactly what Dr. Charles asked, like how do you want to be policed and what can, what can we change that will make you feel safe? And I think at the basis of it, it's really trying to address systemic racism and how police view black people in terms of you know, their policing and public safety. One of the, the baby steps that uh, Chief Mills acknowledged was banning the chokehold in Santa Cruz County. And I think there's a more specific term, carotid choke. It's obviously, a, like he said, it's a baby step. It's a start. And any, any start is good as long as we're continuing to move. Dr. Charles, what, how, how helpful is this first baby step in terms of actually getting rid of that type of chokehold? How in, in training, uh, in police training, in terms of, I don't know what form of training this would be, but when the chokehold is taught, how is it taught to be used and why is it good or not good that we're now removing this? So, you know, there are, there are actually a couple different chokeholds. So there's the respiratory arm bar that goes across the, the trachea, which is the one that really would cause immediate death. Then there's a, what we would call a vascular neck restraint, which is holding in the crook of the arm. And if that's not applied correctly, if an officer is stressed, lacks confidence, or hasn't been trained properly, that's so easy to get that, you know, kind of canted, and then you're, you're causing damage. I've used it in the field, and um, and I've actually taught it as a defensive tax, tactics instructor. So I think the one thing I would say is that I really find Santa Cruz very progressive as far as how they're looking at this. And I really am disheartened when I hear any agency say, we don't need to do anything, we're perfect. And I have to share, my old organization said that, and I was... I think it's just like, I wish you would look in, internally because you have a lot of work to do as well. The other part of that is that if we take away that particular chokehold or something like that, then we need to make sure we're adding something for the officer to, to use. So in other words, if you take away the various tools from an officer in order to control somebody, then you are effectively limiting them on their abilities to, to effectively control somebody. Now, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't take that out because if we can't train that properly, if we can't get people to understand the implications that can happen, we don't need to be using that ever, ever. But what are we going to do in order to replace that? And so I, I think my concern would be what kind of training are we using to supplement that? One of the big things um, that I think needs to be worked on is the very low end of the spectrum, which are the soft skills, which is learning how to talk and the confidence level that you bring 
when you start teaching officers how to verbally talk to somebody and de-escalate from that position there. But when things heat up, what are the other tools that could possibly help control without hurting somebody? Mr. Mayor, if you have any response to that, I, I would love to have, have you feel free to speak there. Yeah, no, I think that um, I think that those points that were addressed were pretty spot on. I, my experience in Santa Cruz and having worked with the police chief, one of the things that we really focus on is de-escalation training. And um, I'm pretty sure that recently the chief made it mandatory for officers to have de-escalation training. And, you know, we'll see to the, the extent to which we can, you know, improve that training. So it's, you know, they're getting more frequent training over time, that it's not like this one-time thing. So that, you know, they're constantly brushing up on those skills. And to add to the um, carotid restraint and the, the prohibition of that here in Santa Cruz, one of the reasons why that they did that is because from all the reports that they've been going through, it was rarely used as a form of restraint. And so it demonstrated that our officers are using other mechanisms for restraining people you know, under you know, really difficult circumstances. So if we're not using this and it's, it's not being applied very often, then let's just get rid of it because obviously the officers have found other ways that they can control people in difficult situations. This this topic of training was a, a big point of discussion in, in my last conversation with Dr. Charles and many people who who have uh, reached out to me and after hearing that conversation, uh, we were all shocked to learn that um, as I was reading Dr. Charles' book, she mentioned in in New York, police are required only four hours of communications training, and then she pointed out to me that in California, zero hours were of communications training were required. And um, I, we're talking about de-escalation training and, and uh, non-bias training was also mentioned in the, in the forum. And I, that's wonderful. Obviously, we want to hear that. But I'm curious, what does this training actually look like, right? If, if I were to hear that an officer in New York had communications training, on surface, that's good. But I know that they only now had four hours. So if someone in our police department gets de-escalation training or non-bias profile training, is that one day of, of training? What, what does this actually look like? You know, I'm not 100% sure what that is. I know that as when I got elected, all employees of the city have to take, you know, diversity training. And I think we have to take a refresher every couple of years. And it was only, you know, a few hours. And I'm not sure if that's the same for police officers as well. But that's something that we can definitely look at, you know, right now as we're trying to look at our policing policy and training, it's an opportunity for us to see, you know, how many hours of training do they receive? How frequently is that training? And then also what's the context of that training? So, so who's delivering the training and is it effective for the police officers? Because it might be that the training needs to change because we, you know, um, our understanding of what's important in terms of what officers need to understand as it relates to cultural competency that maybe the training is insufficient and they need more. And I know that UC Santa Cruz has a really good diversity, equity, and inclusion certification training. And so there might be an opportunity for us to pair with the university to you know, broaden the training that they're receiving to understand, you know, to make it more effective. A reminder for all of those tuning in now, my name is Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to What to Be. My guests today are Dr. Ginger Charles, former police sergeant and current research psychologist with Cabrillo College, and the Santa Cruz City Mayor, Justin Cummings. 
Please note the views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Natural Bridges Media or your future as our business. And now, back to the show. Dr. Charles, uh, do you have any experience with your own de-escalation training? Can you comment on what, what you've seen in your experiences in terms of what it may or may not be effective? Uh, sure. First, I'd like to say that, you know, when you have agencies that take a look and say, well, we value doing these de-escalation um, skills and training, that's all on them. So that's where POST says there's no mandatory requirement. The individual agency would say, yes, it's, it's definitely a requirement here. So we're going to make sure that it happens within our organization, which is what Santa Cruz PD does. Uh, at least I'm assuming that's how their training works within de-escalation. From de-escalating... Um, in my personal experiences, I used to teach the old class verbal judo. Um, that was at least eight hours that we would teach an officer there too. But you know, it it has to be um, it has to be encouraged that you know this is a more appropriate way until it doesn't work anymore. Um, all the way through that that officer's training, when you when you're teaching these kinds of soft skills, this really needs to start with currently my position, which is in the, in the colleges and teaching these young, uh, these young people that we need to target, we, we need to target you for presentation skills. We need to tar- target you for being able to write better and communicate better because that's going to make you a better officer in, in confronting somebody. You're going to have more confidence when you go into the field and then encouraging that all through training. And that can happen through an entire field training program can happen in refreshers. You know, I think what the mayor says is really rather interesting in changing the training because if you had the group and a, com- and a community together and said, how do you want to be police? What's going on in your community? And having these open conversations would be de-escalation training that these officers would understand. Asking questions actually gives them more empowerment in order to take this forward into the community and work in partnership with them. So if you're out there with a, a skateboarder that's causing trouble and saying, you know, hey, what's going on for you? How can how can we make this better for both of us? Then that starts the conversation. Those soft skills start to become more valuable. So that would be just one suggestion. Thank you, Dr. Charles. I, here's a, a question that I, I think I would like for if you both have any view on this. This is something that I've... Um, Again, speaking with with my peers, struggled to to figure out how to get this point across. And how can we get a, the point across that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement isn't just for Black people; that it's for all oppressed people? Uh, I, if either of you have any comment in terms of driving driving that point home, and, and I guess this does uh, this definitely change gears from police training in which we were on. But my goals in this conversation are to facilitate conversation between the the two of you because I feel that is helpful for our community, but also to, to help try and answer any, any tough questions. This has been one of the hardest conversations that I've had. I have another friend who lives down in South Mississippi, who's spoken with some of her, her, her Asian peers, and they, they get frustrated at hearing the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, black, the slogan, because they think, well, Asian lives matter too. So how do we, how do we tell people that th- this is helpful for more than black people? Um, I can just state that, you know, the whole purpose, the root purpose of the movement is to really say that if we think about, you know, in terms of violence that's perpetuated against different groups of people within our society, we do see, for example, that 
you know, black men are 2.5 times more likely to be killed by a police officer than white men. That in and of itself, and just the legacy and history of systemic racism, which has been built around the suppression and the oppression of black people, and that to this day, we're still seeing those kinds of statistics when we look at, um, you know, who gets killed more often by police officers, who's incarcerated more often, what demographics of people are in poverty, you know. And we see that constantly with black people only being 13% of the population, they're the highest demographic when you look at those scenarios. That is what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about. It's not saying that other people's lives don't matter. It's saying that if we think about civil rights and human rights, black people's lives are kind of listed at the bottom of, you know, in terms of importance. And we have the 1% at the top, right? So we really have to, if we really want to bring about change and we really want to say that we're dedicated to ending systemic racism, well, then we have to look at you know, who's on the bottom. And I'd say, and actually, I'll, I'll say that you know, black, black men and Native Americans are probably at the bottom of that list. So you know, if we can care about and uplift the voices of the black community, Native Americans, then we will be able to uplift the voices of other people as well. But we have to focus on who's being impacted the worst. And to add to that as well, I mean, I think that we often, you know, there's so many things going on that we fail to you know, remember what's happening in our country. You know, we, at the same time that we're seeing, you know, black men being, you know, killed by police officers, we have concentration camps on our border where we're stripping children away from their parents, putting them into, into detention centers, and we have no idea what's happening to them, right? And so we can't stop, you know, we can't let one situation allow us to forget all the different levels of injustice that are happening on our country. We really need to, you know, focus on the fact that there's still a lot of systemic racism and oppression that's happening in 2020, and we really need to stand up and do something about it. And so I think that the Black Lives Matter movement has continued to catalyze, you know, to be a catalyst uh, for moving this forward as it relates to police being killed by, um, as sorry, it relates to black men being killed by police officers. But there's so much going on that we really need to start focusing on in terms of making things more equitable and just in this country. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope that can clear some things up. Dr. Charles, did you have a response? Yes, I, I think the, the mayor is absolutely right on all counts. I would say, uh, you know, from the, the issue of, you know, the policing, you know, there's, it's in the system, it's been in the system since the very beginning. And one of the main problems is somebody that has a face like mine that says, I didn't do this. And telling them you are part of the issue. And I'll tell you a quick story. I had a student that was so angry about the killing of Sergeant Gutzwiler and said, can't we blame Black Lives Matter? And I said, no, absolutely not. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with there are, there are times when good people get in the crossfire. And she said, what can I do? And I said, get educated, start asking questions, uh, start, start sit, speaking out against racist uh, behavior do not allow this to perpetuate our community. And so with police officers, we have to break that defensive barrier. And I'm not speaking necessarily of Santa Cruz. I'm speaking in general to the United States. We have to break that defensive barrier that it's not my problem or I didn't do this and why am I being picked on? Because the other side of this is you may be being picked on for this. This is a reckoning for police in general, but there's somebody else who's losing their lives. 
And so can we sit in that other side and have a look at what that may be like, then come back to where we are and be able to say, all right, now, how can I stop this? How can I improve the situation from where I stand within this police agency? Uh, I, that's what I really believe needs to start happening. Mr. Mayor, can you describe any experience with police contact that you had before ever getting into, into politics and, and what those experiences were like for you? Um, well, I've had a variety of interactions with police officers, ranging from racial profile growing up in Chicago. I mean, I was even you know, falsely arrested once. And, you know, that wasn't a very good experience. Was threatened to get beaten. I've been threatened to, you know, I was, when I was a teenager, I was threatened to get taken to county during the same instance. I was probably 15 years old. And so, you know, that was a really bad experience I've had. I also grew up with friends whose parents were police officers. So I got to know their parents. Their parents looked out for me um, as a kid. And I still stay in contact with them to this day. Uh, so I've had a lot of different ranges of experiences. And even in Santa Cruz, I've met police officers here and, and have had great relationships with them and you know, gotten to know them over time. Even when I got elected, it was in the process of running, met Chief Mills and got to sit down with him and, and build trust with him, uh, which is why I'm very confident working together with him on these topics, because we I think it's one of these things that we've, we've broken down that that othering. Right. We aren't seeing each other as these, you know, we haven't grouped each other into, into anything specific. We see each other as human beings and we trust each other and we try working together on solutions and having this dialogue. And that's extremely critical in terms of trying to break down these barriers because if we want a better relationship between communities and the police officers who serve them, they have to communicate and they have to have dialogue and, and really intentionally work towards making a difference and changing. So um, I try not to let interactions kind of create stereotypes uh, within my mind about who demographics of people are and how they behave. Instead, I really try to focus on individuals and their actions. But I do, at the same time, know that when I leave Santa Cruz, I have to keep in my mind that I'm still a black man in America. And if I get pulled over by police or in a certain neighborhood, that I can be perceived differently and I should always be cautious. Dr. Charles, you mentioned er earlier in this conversation that a lot of the accountability of a police organization falls onto that own organization. That it's, there's no national or statewide umbrella, right? I was curious, is there any standard for a police organization holding accountable a different police organization? And what, what makes me curious about this is that we as a Santa Cruz Police Department seem to be on a very progressive track, right? And why why couldn't it be that other police organizations from maybe neighboring communities can take information from us? How, how can we, uh, you know, of course we got to help pr uh, protect our own community first, but how can we then take these progressive outlooks and try and encourage other police organizations to to follow a similar path? I certainly would hope that we would look at maybe doing something uh, cooperative nationally. Uh, I would tell you that I'm rather disheartened by the police reform that's being put forth. Uh, I feel almost like it's a knee-jerk reaction um, because I don't hear a lot of, you know, what does the community think around this? I hear, you know, this is what we're going to do. And quite frankly, I don't think that that's the strength of police to be able to say, this is how you're, we're going to treat you. 
when in fact we should be asking, how do you want to be treated? Or how, how do you want to be policed? And so if, you know, if you look at Santa Cruz and the, and the agencies within here, I'm actually rather impressed with how they do work and they seem to cooperate very well together, but it is a very um, power driven, egotistical profession. And so you have a lot of territorial issues going on. In fact, when I was doing some research, I had a, a chief's constable who was the one who said, you police, you officers in America have no idea how to police. I mean, he's the one who generated the thought for the question when he said, we have one police service, you have 18,000. And, you know, how do you maintain any kind of control? And, it, and that is problematic. So is there a way to kind of coordinate that? And I'm hoping that as a country, when we look to solving this issue and making standards and um, ways to take care of each other, that maybe we can come to some kind of agreement. But that's one of the problems of being so individualistic within America. A reminder for all of those tuning in now, my name is Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to What to Be. My guests today are Dr. Ginger Charles, former police sergeant and current research psychologist with Cabrillo College, and the Santa Cruz City Mayor, Justin Cummings. Please note the views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Natural Bridges Media or your future is our business. And now, back to the show. I, I wanted to go back to to some of the training, or maybe actually screening. This again, this was also talked about in the in the public forum. Someone else asked, "How how effective are our screening processes? Um, are are they in terms of hiring police officers? Is the screening happening before the hiring, after the hiring?" Police Chief Mills described it that we, there's actually a very scrutinizing. He described it as brutal, actually psychological test. I have questions for the both of you on that, Doctor Charles. Uh, to you. Is there a, a similar psychological test that you've had to go through? And if you're able to describe that experience and how effective you might see that test. And Mr. Mayor, afterwards, if you can comment on, if you happen to know what that test looks like here and it, your own comments as to how effective that might actually be. So I would say, you know, I've had uh, psychological tests um, at each agency that I've worked at. And I'll tell you an interesting story around that too. Again, with my degree in psychology, I'm very familiar with these tests, but when you take an initial test, um, a psychological test, you have the MMPI and you have other tests and usually an interview with a, a psychologist who's familiar with the, the police um, profession. And that rookie entry level psychology interview is usually much different than, than say, you know, 10 years later, I'm going to another agency. I have to take tests where they understand that I've had experience because from when I was a rookie to a 10 year veteran, I'm completely different. And if I scored at the 10 year level as a rookie, I would have been disqualified. So that really tells you how the, the profession and how they look at that changes you. And so I think most agencies that do good background interviews use psychological testing and most of it seems to be pretty good. I think one of the major issues that we have are, are these officers that can hop from agency to agency when they have done something wrong at the previous agency. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times the, the folks 
hands are tied as far as being able to share something at the previous agency with the with the agency the officer is testing here. So they may only be able to say, yes, he or she worked here. When in fact, they could be saying, don't hire this person. I mean, that's what happened with Tamir Rice. You know, that that information did not get to the other agency that was just down the road that this officer should not be hired. And so that national registry about, you know, complaints on officers and, and looking through that, obviously that needs to be really looked at as far as how we do it, is really valuable for screening processes beyond the, psycho- the psychology of the police officer. We need to look at the behavior within the profession, um, behavior within other professions. Uh, so I certainly do really encourage a very thorough and difficult background. I, in Dr. Charles's book, she mentions a lot about the incredible stress that police officers go through and, and ultimately ending up with PTSD and not being given the resources to to deal with this sort of thing. And I, to give an example um, of one of the things that a police officer might deal with on a, on a given day, uh, she wrote about an officer having to show up to a call about the death of an infant, and the next call is a, a disturbance in a park, very remedial in comparison, right? But it the, the difference in time is is nothing. So this officer doesn't have any time to process this horrible, horrible incident that they showed up with in the morning. What kind of resources do do our police officers have in Santa Cruz to deal with with things like PTSD or, or other psychological or mental health issues? Yeah, thinking back um, to conversations I've had with Chief Mills, I, I do know that there are um, opportunities for our officers to see counselors and to see uh, psychiatrists. And I'm pretty sure we've also implemented um, these opportunities for officers to go to retreats where they can actually you know, have some time away and really kind of have an opportunity to, to meet with someone on a regular basis in a you know, closed setting where they have, you know, an opportunity to really open up without having to, you know, immediately the next day go back into back into the field, right? And so I think that these these kinds of programs are really beneficial, especially if you have a lot of emotions and issues that you've packed away that really influence how you show up so that, you know, you can really try to work through some of these feelings and emotions and really, you know, heal psychologically so that you're able to do your best in the field. Another thing I'm curious about in terms of our policies and another question that comes from Dr. Charles's book is an officer having to report misconduct by another officer or member of the police organization. Sometimes you will have leadership distancing where the the supervisor maybe just doesn't want to be a, a part of any of that, or there's a big fear of retaliation from other members of the police department. Mr. Mayor, do we have anything in place within our department to circumvent leadership distancing, where if maybe someone needs to go past a supervisor to report something or to protect an officer from retaliation? Well, I believe that, you know, just from a human resources perspective, that um, there are protections in place for employees against retaliatory behavior from speaking out against um, bad behavior. I know that uh, the chief constantly mentions um, one of the policies that they have, which is if you see it, you own it. Right. And so if you see bad behavior happening, it's your responsibility to report. Otherwise, you're also you're equally held responsible for the behavior that's caused. So there are mechanisms and culture that's being built around that. And um, I think that's another thing that we're going to be looking further into as we have these 
conversations with community and with the police, I, I definitely a part of this is going to be for me to sit down with them uh, to understand what is their experience and how do they do you know, policing in Santa Cruz. And then also one of the things that we've found that's going to be really critical is having the police in these meetings with the community and having that be a dialogue that's not just the, the community is bringing you know, demands, so to speak, to police officers. It's we need to work together to hear each other out. Um, yeah, and I can speak to that further too later, but I'll, I'll defer the conversation over to, to Dr. Charles. Warms my heart to hear what we're doing in Santa Cruz. Um, I would say, you know, I've certainly experienced it. I knew that in, you know, I had, I was very young when I reported on an officer who was beating up my prisoner. And then there were retaliations that happened in that organization. Um, when you look at the George Floyd uh, death, uh, and those two guys, four days on, and we shouldn't be doing this. We're going to do this. And so then they're consumed by that behavior. So it's, you know, that that's the part of the culture that we really need to look at, you know, how safe is it in order to say something? And I, I would say, I think the only thing that I would say um, is the reinforcement of what are the other outlets beyond a HR? Because uh, I can tell you from an officer's perspective that HR, who does who does HR align with? Are there police officer friends that they have? Do they feel secure in the fact that, well, if I go to HR, I'm going to be okay? Or what kind of, um, for lack of a better term, buddy system goes on within a culture where if I decide to go around my sergeant to the lieutenant or a commander, will I be protected? Because the issue comes when you're on night shift. And you've reported something from your team, and then something comes down. Do you have backup? And you know that that can be a pretty scary thing for an officer to take a look at. Do I say something to protect myself, or do I not say something to protect myself? And so those pieces of culture are are really need to be enforced as far as you know how how do we change this so we don't get consumed by that very thin layer that is having such a dramatic effect on, on law enforcement. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Uh, I was curious, Mr. Mayor, this number was given out by one of the, the callers who asked a question in the, in the forum, and they mentioned that our, our police department has a $30 million police budget. Is that, is, is that correct? $30 million uh -huh. budget? I believe it's roughly $28 okay. million, sure. so it's somewhere around there. I should probably confirm that, but that's that's my understanding. Do you know the breakdown of that budget? What is being diverted where? Uh, I've seen a lot of, I suppose, disturbing graphics in terms of what percentage of funding actually goes into training. is doesn't seem to usually be very high. Uh, a lot of it seems to go into military gear, and that's obviously been a, a big issue for people is the militarization of police. So do, do you know where what this police funding goes to within the department? Sure. Um, you know, I can't speak to specifics. Um, I've looked deep into those budgets, you know, last year when we were doing our budget. I haven't really reviewed them recently. I know a lot of our budget goes towards um, personnel, like so in terms of um, salaries and benefits. That's a big portion oftentimes of what our budget comprises. And with regards to the increases that people are saying, you know, the people are demanding that we not increase this budget, a lot of those increases, again, are... Um, are towards salaries and benefits because each year, you know, cost of living goes up. Um, there's salary increases and there's increases to 
the cost for benefits. So a lot of what's you know increasing in terms of the budget here in Santa Cruz, a lot of those increases, those annual increases are increases to um, to compensation for work. So just wanted to put that out there. But it's another question. It's another thing that we're going to be looking deeply into in terms of you know what are some changes that need to be made here in Santa Cruz. But unlike a lot of um, agencies, my understanding and my, the sense that I've had being in Santa Cruz is that we don't you know, have a heavily militarized police department, and that's not something that we've been really focusing on investing in. Dr. Charles, I was wondering if, can you break down what you saw in the Richard Brooks killing? And I ask this because this this is, um, you know, a, a different example of of police use of lethal force in terms of a lot of people question or talk about uh Rashard Brooks pointing back with with the taser and whether or not that was a good enough reason for the officer to use lethal force I, I think my personal question is or, or opinion right I'm not trained in any of this is no but I, I don't I, I just I guess I'm hoping you could you could break this down maybe if anything else could have been done to help prevent the loss of life here? Sure. So, um, you know, this strictly comes from my perception and experiences. So we just take the snapshot and we look at uh, Richard Brooks pointing a taser back at an officer, just that snapshot. I hear in my head, in my taser training, if somebody points their taser at you, that is deadly force. So you take the snapshot and you go, oh, okay. But then you extend it and you start looking at the video. So then you start seeing, okay, he's how far away from that officer? You know, how accurate is that taser? Do those officers have the ability to get behind any form of cover? Because the taser is not very effective, quite frankly, at any particular distance. And then you start looking at, okay, what were they responding to? Were they responding to an actual crime or was it somebody sleeping in a car? Then you look at the length of time that they were on the call, which is my understanding is 40 minutes. And then you look at what were the other options that could have happened within that, that call. And the really, truly unfortunate thing is, is that we have three people in that incident, uh, one who's dead and two who are now being charged or one's being charged and the other one is being looked at that really can't talk to us now because, you know, we have charges and we have death. And so, you know, we could have, we could have looked at this and said, why didn't you take the guy home? Is that a policy thing that maybe we need to look at? Or why didn't you let him walk home? You had him for 40 minutes. What's the point from this, this section here? And then he was sleeping in his car, so he's not driving. Yeah, he had to drive to get there. But you know, what's the, what's the better picture of that? And so when we look at that particular scenario and we think, what was in the mind of these two officers where they didn't seem to have a lot of cognitive flexibility in thinking about other options that might make more sense, particularly in this line of, of um, reaction and reaction that's going across our country. So when you look at the entire video, then it completely changes my perspective of, you know, whether this was a quote unquote good shoot. And I see just some horrendous, horrendous mistakes and, unfortunately, dead, deadly. Then you go back to um, what the mayor was saying as far as the, the feelings and the assumptions that, it, that a, a young black man has when he or she, he is encountering a police officer. So that we have this whole culture of fear, not only from the young black man or that community, 
but also from the police officers who are fearful of, I'm afraid to let him go. I'm afraid to make a mistake. I'm afraid that I'll look like a fool. I'm afraid that he took my taser from me. And so that causes a reaction there. So you have this fear upon fear and then very poor choices because there's no frontal lobe going on there. That's just set aside and it's just reaction and animalistic. And then you see the after effect there too. When you look at that, the impression is anger, frustration. So that would be my interpretation and strictly interpretation. You mentioned that it, what you weren't seeing was the, the cognitive flexibility that was needed to to avoid loss of life here. And to me, all I can think is that what would help there is education, whether whether it's formal education or, or training uh, for situations like these. So, Mr. Mayor, I was wondering, do you know, are, is there any education requirement for our police officers before they even can apply for the job. I know that Dr. Charles had mentioned that she happened to work at, a, at an organization in Colorado that required a four-year degree. Does our police department also require any form of for, formal education? And I don't know that answer, but I do know from conversations that I've had recently that the majority of the officers have four-year degrees here in Santa Cruz. Um, and I know that some have degrees in sociology and so, you know, our officers, are, for the most part, are educated, right? It's not the type of department where, you know, you have a high school diploma and you're good to go. Um, I think that there's some intentionality around hiring officers who have an education. But, you know, I want to speak to one of the things that Dr. Charles brought up, because I think it's important that, you know, as we think about, you know, changing um, culture in general, one of the things that I think is unfortunately becoming more prevalent and may have been in existence longer in the police community is kind of this, you know, this culture of kind of shaming. So for example, you know, if you go back and some guy got away from you, are your peers going to be shaming you for doing that? Or are they going to say, it's okay. It happens. You know, we're just glad that you got out of that situation safe. Right. And, and we're starting to see more of this bullying shame culture happen on social media. For example, like you can't really, have an opinion. So if I were to say, I don't believe in defunding the police, you know, all these people then attack, like, oh, you know, you don't care about black people, you don't care about the black community. You know, there's, we're losing opportunities to have dialogue because we want to seek some moral higher ground. And I think that we really have to be careful with that. Um, just because someone might say, you know, they don't believe in defunding the police, it should be an opportunity to, to ask the follow-up question, which is, why don't you believe that? Right? And so, really trying to see eye to eye. And I think that that culture is also you know, the kind of bullying shame culture around not feeling like you can you know, tell somebody that they did something wrong in policing or you know, not being able to come back and say, this guy got away or, or what have you, or you know, he took my taser. It could, you know, the questions could be, well, how did that happen? And what led you know, the situation to get to that point? And I think by, by allowing for there to be flexibility and, and uh, opportunity for expression, people will feel like they're much more comfortable in these situations because if, for example, they had let you know this guy go, they wouldn't be reprimanded for it. They'd be like, well, you know what? It was probably a better option rather than killing him and then getting charged with murder and having him you know, spend 20 years in prison. You know, Mayor, you actually bring up a really good point that would be a great training tool. And it's unfortunate these these incidents will will need to become some kind of a training tool in saying, okay, so let's look at the scenario here and 
um, and let's have a conversation. What does that look like if you let this this guy go? Uh, I can tell you this exact scenario happened to me at a 7-Eleven in a small mountain town. I was interviewing this guy and he was intoxicated and he took off running from me. I started to chase him a little while. And then I went, this is crazy. I have his driver's license right here in my hand. That's just nuts. And so I yelled at him and said, I got your driver's license. I'll be by in a little while and walk back to my car. So, you know, having those conversations with police officers to say, well, why would you, why do you think you would shoot? You know, is that something like pre-programmed from your training? And having that conversation is really very powerful to stop this uh, kind of shaming. I have a, a young graduate student that I'm working with at another university. And she said, you know, Dr. Charles, I'm an abolitionist. I think we should get rid of all policing. And so instead of taking a defensive tactic or stance on that, if I open up and say, okay, so what does that look like to you? And if a police officer can say, all right, what does that look like to you? If somebody comes to your door with a gun, how would you resolve that? How does that look for you? And having a real true conversation so that other people in the discussion can reach a higher level of understanding through that chaos. Um, so I would commend the mayor that, yeah, absolutely. We, we need to stop the shaming so we can have the conversation. We're coming up on the last five minutes or so in this hour, and so I, I wanted to get some questions to to address to the both of you in terms of uh, helping out our our community or providing advice. And uh, specifically, what what advice might you both have for for young people? Because this show is generally directed at student K through twelve students, and going. So, what advice might you have for any of these students who have to deal with racism? How, what what do they do? How do how do they protect themselves when they when they respond? If they are personally dealing with it, finding an ally, you know, uh, getting educated, um, but really finding that ally in whatever area to say, hey, can you help me with this? Um, and then those of us who are, you know, these blooming allies, being able to look out for it and say. You know, this looks like this is really tough. Can I, is there anything I can do or what do you need in order to be successful? I mean, that's really my goal as, um, as a teacher and mentor is, you know, when I see a stu uh, students um, struggling to be able to say, what do you need in order to be the most successful you can be? And then let that vulnerability open up um, so that we can address the other issues that may come up. But um, just, just caring, crying out loud, just caring about the other person that's in front of you. Yeah, I would say, you know, um, spot, like, you know, if you're, if you're at the, if you're on the receiving end of it, really trying to find people that will, you know, an ally to express what's happened to you so that you can, um, you know, find, solu you know, solutions or resolve or you can express what's happening. And it all depends on context, right? Like if I'm at, um, if I'm in high school and I'm at a concert and I experience that, you know, if I experience racism in that space, um, it's going to be a really difficult and different scenario than if, um, you know, you're at school, right? So it may be that, you know, if, if there's a group of folks and, and that's what they do, you know, it's like, let other people know so that they're aware, you know, that there are people in our community who are like this and just want to make sure that we are aware because they're a threat to me and, and other people right and, and encourage people to not spend time with those those people right it's like if you really are going to hang out with them um then 
it's going to be difficult for me to be your friend. And I really care about our friendship. Right. Um, and here's why I don't think it's good to, to be friends with these people. If you are on the observing end of it, I think that it's one of these situations where you have to, you should speak up. Right. Um, you, if you're watching it, you can do a lot by just speaking up and intervening and trying to find someone else who can help in that situation. And, and I think that's really important that you know, people can see that there's someone out there who's going to have their back and they're not just going to stand by and watch you know, racist acts happen. That they, they can you know, trust that the people around them, when they see it, they'll, they'll try to intervene. So I guess those are the two things. It, given that this, you know, this age demographic, those are two things I think would be helpful. Sure, sure. All right. Well, if my, I guess my last question is, do the, either of you have any final comments, anything that maybe you wanted to say, but I, I didn't ask about or, or things that you just want to add as a note to our communities? In order to make systemic change happen, you have to educate yourself on the systems that you're trying to change, right? I've had people ask me, what am I going to do about the um, county jail? That's run by the, the uh, sheriff's department, which is a part of the county. Um, people ask me what I'm going to do about the sheriff's department. I said, that also is part of the county. People have said that we need to cut the police budget and give it to more social services. Hundreds of millions of dollars are in the county to provide social services. That's their role, not the cities. And what I say to that is, well, maybe we should start by looking at where the county's budget is spent on social services and understanding whether or not there's a need to reallocate funds rather than saying we need to cut the funds from the police department when the city doesn't really provide any social services. So it's really critical that people understand the way the government's structured, where the funding is, and who's responsible for you know, running our community. I, would, I think that's a key point. If you're looking at the, the phrase of defunding, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, but I am saying that, you know, a lot of these social problems that law enforcement end up handling are because there wasn't, there wasn't the personnel in order to handle them. So they became a problem and the police said, oh my gosh, we need some help here. And so the funding came to the police in order to address that. So if you're going to take away something from the police, then those individuals that, that are receiving that funding need to be responsible for taking on those particular problems. Because what happened before was there was not a responsibility because lack of personnel or um, increased call load or whatever the situation is. And so if that other agency isn't responsible, it comes back to that police department and then they have no, no funding for it. So, you know, we have to really, uh, as the mayor said, think through critically about what we're asking for and have conversations about, well, this is what it looks like if you do this. Okay, well, what's another solution? So, and I would echo, you know, get educated about all of this. That's, that's really the important thing. This is a, a, a chance for us to be better, all of us to be better. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for, for, for the have, coming to me with this conversation and for, for participating here. I really, I can't express how much this means to me personally, and I'm just excited to, to put your words out there. Um, ha happy to help in any way we can. Thank you so much. And thank you so, so much to all of those listening now. I hope this discussion provided you with the knowledge and courage we need to keep this movement going. We must keep having these kinds of conversations, asking questions about things that we don't understand, especially if these things make us uncomfortable. If you're wondering to yourself, what can I do? 
how can I help? Just listen and learn. And if you feel educated on these topics, then by all means, educate. I have a good friend in living in South Mississippi who shared with me her story of finally being able to tell her own mother how she feels when her mom is being racist. Imagine that, having to try and show your own parents why the things they believe are hurtful. These types of conversations are never easy, but they are necessary. We've seen some positive changes over the last couple of weeks. Shout out to Mississippi for voting to remove the Confederate battle emblem from their state flag. But remember, the struggle is not over, and we are not done. Keep listening, keep learning, and keep taking action. My name is Jacob Morales-Sheckman, and this is What To Be.